The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Hey gang, how's it going? Seven people are doing great. Everyone else is already asleep. Right on. Hey, uh, it's Palm Sunday and... um, We're going to take a break from the book of Galatians. I was kind of preparing even yesterday, planning on still teaching in Galatians. (laughs) The text, while it's going to be fun to teach, I won't lie to you, it's Paul going, I think I've wasted my time with you people. And I just thought, that doesn't have a Palm Sunday sort of ring to it. So I bailed on that, and we're going to be in Luke chapter 19 today. And we're going to actually look at the Palm Sunday account, but we're going to do um, something slightly uh, different maybe than, than what you've been accustomed to on Palm Sunday. Before we turn all the lights on and all that kind of stuff, I wanted to show you guys a couple of images that I brought back with me from our time in Israel um, in May of last year. We actually got to go to the place where these things happened, and it was really interesting. We went there. Um, it was the week that the Pope was visiting. And they were about to close down the Mount of Olives completely so that no one could go there. So our bus driver uh, came, or our tour guide and our bus driver working together, they were aware of this. And so they dropped us off like commandos on the top of the Mount of Olives. They were like, go, 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 and just kicked us off the bus and took off so that we could get down the road into the Kidron Valley in that area before they locked everything down. So it was this really hectic time. Security was at an all-time high. There are guys with machine guns everywhere along those perimeters. They dump us off. We're brushing past all of them to get into the, the area. And then as we're walking through the area, we, keep, we start hearing these just bam, 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 bam. And we're like, oh man, it's happening. Like we are here. There is war breaking out. Something's going on. Then we're hearing sirens everywhere. It was crazy. Later we would find out that at Muslim weddings, fireworks are normal as part of the end of the wedding. And apparently there was a wedding going on like a Tuesday afternoon or whatever whatever it was, freaked us out, added to the experience, but that was okay. But um, what I wanted to show you is to give you a little bit of a picture in your mind of where this is taking place, though this is obviously modern day footage, for example, but this photo that you're seeing here is taken from the Mount of Olives looking to the city of Jerusalem. So when you think of Jesus coming through the Mount of Olives across what's called the Kidron Valley and into the city of Jerusalem, it's not a huge area. We were talking about this just a couple of Wednesday nights ago. In a lot of ways, you can think neighborhoods, not cities. It's very close together. And so if you look to the right, you can see some trees that are still there. That is the Garden of Gethsemane. That is the Mount of Olives area over here. And Jesus would have made his way on the triumphal entry down that hill, that little valley that you see, that little, it's almost like a giant ditch really, is the Kidron Valley. And he would make his way back up to the gate going into the Temple Mount. And the gate he would have come through is called the Eastern Gate. If you would put the next photo up, it's also referred to as the Golden Gate. Oh, this is, I forgot about this. This is the road that we would take. Now, whether it's the one that Jesus took or not, we don't know for sure. I mean, mean, it wasn't paved like this, I'm sure, and didn't have security guards and ambulances everywhere. But um, this is the road that you would take down to go up the Kidron Valley to, now we can show the gate, the Eastern Gate, or what is referred to as the Golden Gate. Now, if you look at this picture, you'll see that the gate doesn't actually have a gate. It's been sealed. And this is actually a pretty remarkable story um, that's worth sharing, if for no other reason than just for for our understanding of the reliability and just some of the interesting history of Scripture. 
Um, But this gate, the eastern gate, the one that the Messiah was to come through, um, in Ezekiel chapter 44, it says that that gate would one day be sealed and it would not be opened again until the Messiah returned. Now, the Jews, as we know, missed the, the, the actual coming of the Messiah, Jesus, when he first came through this gate. This would be the Palm Sunday gate that the branches are waving and Jesus comes into the city on, and they missed it. Don't want to give away too much because we're about to talk about it, but that's how it ends. So Jesus makes his way through the gate, and then the prophecy in Ezekiel 44 said that this gate would one day be sealed and would not be opened up again until Messiah returns. Well, in the 1500s, the Ottoman Empire, the Turks, actually came and invaded, took over this city, and they called the Jewish rabbis together that were there, and they said, hey, we keep hearing about this Messiah guy. Who is this? What's it about? And the rabbis and teachers there, not looking for a suffering Messiah who would come to reconcile men to God as Jesus did the first time, they were looking for, as we know, a political Messiah. And so they're telling the Turks, when the Messiah comes, you guys are toast. When the Messiah comes, he's going to rid the land of the enemies that has held Israel under its thumb, and he's going to restore the kingdom of Israel, and you guys are in big trouble. And so the Ottomans, the Turks, actually, they were like, okay, then, then fine, we'll just seal up the gate, and then he can't come through. And so they ended up fulfilling prophecy by sealing this gate. Years later, when the the Arabs were in charge there and they were building what's referred to as the Dome of the Rock Mosque now on the Temple Mount, which is that gold-topped building you saw a minute ago, when they were building that, they also were aware of these prophecies concerning Messiah that would rid Israel of its invaders. And so they actually planted a cemetery right outside the gate because no good Jewish rabbi would ever walk through a cemetery because they're not going to be in contact with dead bodies. Of course, if you're the Messiah who comes and resurrects people from the dead, it's not quite an issue, is it? And so they build this cemetery and the gate is sealed and it's been that way. The prophecy says that that gate will not be open again until Jesus returns. And it's real interesting, there's been a couple of times in history where it almost was blown open and destroyed. Most notably, in World War I, when the Arabs were holed up inside, General Allenby, the English general, had an entire army surrounding the whole city, had cannons and tanks with their guns aimed right at this gate, ready to blow it open. And they were coming to the end, like, how are we going to get in there? We've got to get to these guys. They're all holed up in the walls. And Allenby, who was a Christian himself, did not want to take the city by destroying anything that could be considered a holy artifact or a holy site. And so one night, he literally laid down in bed and prayed, God, will you please give us opportunity to come and take this city without destroying any of your holy sites? And so the next morning, what they decided to do was take their airplanes, these biplanes, which many Arabs had never even seen before, loaded them up not with bombs, but with leaflets. And in the leaflets, it literally said, surrender the city today, signed General Allenby. And they flew these planes over the city, dropped these leaflets all onto the ground. And so the Arab people within catch these things from these weird looking things in the sky that they'd never seen before, most of them. They grab these papers and they look and it says, surrender the city, General Allenby. But they misunderstood Allenby to say Allah. (laughs) And so literally they said, we're out. We give, our God has told us to give up, and Allenby did not have to destroy the gate. He actually entered on the other side through the Jaffa gate, as the prophecies actually said that invaders would come in and take, So, it was an, or that liberators and kings would come through triumphantly. It was just amazing how God's prophecies work together, that God's word is true, it is believable, and though that gate is sealed, it was an awesome thing 
to stand in that place and look at that gate and just picture, man, one day that thing's gonna open up and everything will change. Everything will change. Amen? Amen. You guys can hit the lights now. We're gonna start looking today at the story of the triumphant entry when Jesus Christ came. Um, But we're gonna look at it just a little bit differently. We're gonna start in Luke chapter 19 at verse 11. If you don't have a Bible, just stick a hand up nice and high. While the lights are powering up, you're gonna maybe have to wave them around or throw something at one of the guys or whatever, but they're gonna come through. They've got some Bibles for you. We do believe that it's important to be able to read along with the word of God so you know I'm not making any of this stuff up. It's important that we see, and to me, there's just something about holding the scriptures, whether it be reading through your app or not, Um, but we want you to be able to track with us, so stick a hand up nice and high. If you don't own a Bible, that is our gift to you, and we pray that God will use it to teach you about his grace. We got someone over on this side over here, guys, and maybe a couple others, someone down front. Just wave. You're not going to interrupt me. It's fine. It's all right. And what we're going to do is we're going to start in verse 11. Even though it is a parable, it is not, so to speak, part of the account of Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem. But the reason we're going to do that is because in verse 11 is a story that I don't believe should be divorced from the triumphal entry account. And you're going to see here in just one moment. So Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 11, and I'm going to open us up as is appropriate in a word of prayer. God, we just thank you for this opportunity to open up your word. What a gift it is just to have your holy word in our midst. Lord, these these books we hold in our hand, so much blood has been spilt for us to have the privilege of studying your word. And Lord, we don't take that lightly. We are so thankful for your revelation to us. But God, there's also been many who have sought to lord over your word to change your word, to fit their own desires, to mold you into a God after their image instead of living as those who have been made in your image. And God, our desire is not to do that. So Lord, we even symbolically now bow before you in humble prayer and ask that your word would have its way over your people this morning. Lord, I ask that you would open our eyes and prepare our hearts for the word that you have for us. Whether it's a word I had prepared to speak or not, your spirit can speak. And I pray, God, that you would just move amongst us and that your spirit would teach us. Your word tells us that if your spirit not teach us, then we're not going to learn anything, for these things are only spiritually discerned. So, God, will you speak and move even through the likes of me? And as we pray, Lord, aligned with your psalmist, we pray, God, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O my King, my Rock, and my Redeemer. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said... Amen. Amen. So we're in Luke chapter 19, and we're starting in verse 11. And let me give you a very brief backstory, a little running start, if you may, before we dig into this. The backstory is the disciples just don't get it. Shocker, right? Pretty normal. The disciples just don't get it. These guys have been with Jesus constantly for a period of years now. And he has been teaching them over and over and over, and they just don't get it. In fact, if you turn one page to the left, you'll see in Luke chapter 18, verse 31, Jesus takes the 12 and he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. And every, all the guys are, okay. It's like he's sitting down, okay, guys, track with me. We're going to Jerusalem. Repeat that, we're going to Jerusalem. Good, good. And everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. 
For he will be delivered over to Gentiles, and he will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. Got it? Well, verse 34, but they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them. They did not grasp what he said. It's like, got it, guys? No. And this is normal. And it, but we, we shouldn't get too caught up and we shouldn't be quick to point our finger about their misunderstanding here because we struggle with these things all the time. There are television channels today full of preaching from all over the country and all over the world that people that just don't get it for the same reasons. The disciples are way more interested in restoring Israel to its glory and ruling than they are being reconciled to God for their sin. They don't understand the purpose Jesus has come, and they're just caught up in restoring. So Jesus says, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm, gonna, I'm going to be killed. And they're like, you're going to kill it as a king. No, 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 I'm going to be killed. Yeah, you're going to be a killer king. Like, they just don't see it. They don't understand. And that's why this is hidden. They're more interested in ruling and reigning than suffering and serving. And so they don't want to hear that hard stuff. Now, I told you we're not going to be in the book of Galatians because it's kind of a hard word. And we come to Luke chapter 19, and i got to warn you in advance, it might be a harder word. Uh, But let me say this, if you're visiting and you're with us here today, if you don't know Jesus, I want you to pay attention because this is super, super important. But this is also Jesus' words to his disciples, to his followers, which means it's to the church. And so church, can you take a little bit of a hard word if it came from the mouth of Jesus this morning? There's a few, good. You're going to get it anyway. So so these guys, they don't understand what's going on. And in Luke 19, verse 11, it says, as they heard these things, what things? Well, the verse before it says that Jesus said, the Son of Man came. Why? To seek and save the lost. It's about reconciliation. I mean, they're still part of this, these people. They still have this Jewish background that believes that they are on good terms with God simply because they're Jewish. They don't understand that their sin has alienated them from their God and that their nationality is not going to save them. There's no group admission into heaven. And so they don't understand this. They're just all about, man, we are the kingdom. We are the favored people of God. We're his favorites, and we're going to restore rule. And Jesus says to them, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. In verse 11, and as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable. Because, and this is what's important, this parable, the parable of the ten minas or the ten talents, some of you guys have known these for years, and I would imagine almost every time, if not every time you've ever heard it taught, it's been taught completely separately from any understanding or connection with the Palm Sunday story. And it, it really, it, and I've done that too, it shouldn't be. Because it says here that he gives us the answer. This is why he's telling him. Because he was near Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So he's headed to Jerusalem immediately. Today, it's time to go do this thing that we celebrate on Palm Sunday. And his guys are with him, and they're near Jerusalem, and he hears them talking. He understands what's going through their mind, and he's like, I I need to talk to you guys because you don't understand what's about to happen. So I'm going to share a story to you. These guys think they're going into Jerusalem to restore the kingdom today. That Jesus is going to come in triumphantly. We're finally going to the city. When will your kingdom come? This is why guys like John, his mom, comes to Jesus and says what? When you restore your kingdom, can my son sit on one side and my other son sit on the other side? 
Like they had this belief that he was coming to rule, not to die. And so he understands there's something going on here. So he pulls these guys together and he says, listen, I want to talk to you. Verse 12. And he said, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. And calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minus. Some of your translations may be talent. And he said to them, engage in business or literally make profit until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Now, before we go forward, let me show you some. This is, Jesus is a great, great teacher. And what he's doing here is actually pulling to them together, and he's sharing a parable to them, which has often been described as an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And he wants to teach them where they're at so that they really understand what's going on. And so he tells the story of a king that goes away and then a delegation hates him and goes after him and says, we will not have this man rule over us. And this is something that they had just experienced in this land. Herod the Great, we all know him. We learn a lot about him come Christmas time. Herod the Great had once had 3,000 Jews executed on the Sabbath. So you'd imagine with the Jewish people, he's not real popular. And so when word came out that Rome was going to establish him as king in that area, the Jewish people could not stand this, and they did what? They gathered a delegation, they sent the delegation to Rome, and they literally said to Caesar, we will not have this man rule over us. So Jesus is speaking to them right where they are. He's taking a story that they understand, and he's using that to help them understand something he needs them to grasp. He's a great teacher. And so it goes on in verse 15. And when this king returned, when he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. So let's notice a couple of things. This nobleman, or king is another word for that, this nobleman, this king, goes away, he already has a kingdom. He is a king, and he already has a kingdom. He goes away to receive this kingdom, and as he's gone, he gives to his servants this money, this talent, this, these minas that they might invest, and literally, as it says, make profit for his kingdom while he's gone. So he does have a kingdom already. He's already king, and he tells them, guys, I'm going to be going away for a while. I'm going to come back. But, but when I come back, I'm going to see what you've done with that which I've given you. Make profit. Invest this. I'm coming back. So what he's going to start doing now is he, the king returns, and he's going to start calling these servants together so, so that he can see exactly what's happened with this money that he's gave him since he's been gone. Now, we're not going to get a report from all ten. We're going to get a report from a couple of different types of servants. And the idea of the story is that the word that Jesus is showing us, there's two different types of people that are going to be involved in this. Um, it's going to be the good servant and the other guy. And in case you're not sure, it's never good to be the other guy in Scripture, okay? So this is who the report's going to come from. So the good servant brings the first report. Look at verse 16. In verse 16, it says, The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has been made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. This is interesting to think about, especially in light of the context of what the disciples are thinking about. So 
the servant comes forward. The report is, I've made double what you had. I've doubled your profits. You gave me 10 and I got 10 more to report back to you. He had invested well, had a good return. He's giving it back to the Lord. And the result of that is what? It's reward and commendation. He's commended for his, for his deposit. He said, well done, good servant. And then he says, because you've been faithful, you will now what? Rule 10 cities. Interesting. What was it that the apostles are after? Rule, authority. They want to be great in the kingdom. And, and Jesus says, hey, this servant who invested well, who was responsible steward of that which I gave him while he was gone, He's the one who is rewarded for his faithfulness with what? Rule over 10 cities. I think that's interesting. I, I love blowing up some of our paradigms from time to time. I hope it's not too upsetting. But contrary to what cartoons teach you, or even some of our early Sunday school classes may have taught you, heaven is not going to be us floating around on clouds with harps and white robes. And contrary to what some have said as well, this might really upset some of you, it's not just going to be a 10,000-year worship concert either. The scriptures say that there is a new heaven and a new earth, that there's ruling and reigning and governing. There will be life. There will be jobs. Ooh, there will. There's going to be jobs. There will be life. I don't know about you. I find that comforting. Maybe it's just the familiarity that brings us some form of comfort in the great unknown to come, but, but there will be. What there won't be is strife and toil. That's different. It'll be work that is glorifying to God and brings us absolute, total joy to fulfill. And so this is what he says. The one who gets rule is the one who is a faithful steward over what I've given him. That's interesting. Then the next servant comes and gives report, verse 18. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has been made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. I think this is awesome too. This guy also is commended. Now, it, it's not in the text. You don't see him saying good servant, but the way that it's written in the prose of this day, um, the, the commendation is intrinsic in the story. It's to be understood that this guy, though he only brought five back, that he is commended for his work in the same way the first guy is, and he too is rewarded. In commensurate with the reward or with the, excuse me, the profit that he earned, he's given five cities. Notice what isn't said here. It's not, you only got five? Why didn't you bring 10 like him? That comparison game that we do with one another as Christians, it's not in the kingdom here. It's just reward. He just says, good servant. And he gives him reward over these. So, so whether you say, well, I'm not as talented as someone else, and I don't feel like I'm leading as many people to Jesus as someone else, and that fear that we're going to go to heaven and we're going to be compared to one another, just knock that out of your system right now. Just be faithful with what God's given you. And so this is what happens. So what do we have so far? We have this understanding that there is a king who holds his servants accountable to that which he has given them and invested in. And the good servant that we see so far is the one who is a good steward over that which has been given him for the sake of the kingdom. So in other words, we understand. If we desire to be a good servant of Jesus, we understand our money is not our money. Our money is a gift that has been given us by the king who is away, but who will come again one day. And our responsibility is before that day that we stand before him and give account for that which he's entrusted us with, our responsibility is to use that money to invest in the kingdom of God. 
I mean, our talents that he's given us, whether they're athletic ability, whether it's intelligence, whatever the thing is that God has blessed you with, musical ability, you can do taxes, whatever it is that God has blessed you with, your responsibility is that to understand this is something that has been entrusted you by the king to use for his glory and for the profit, if you will, of his kingdom until that day in which he returns again. So that means everything that has been given me has been given me by God's wisdom. Everything that I am, I am by God's intelligent design and providence for the sake of glorifying God in every aspect of my life to this day. That's what this means. And I also need to understand that one day, according to this parable, I'm going to, as a servant of this king, stand before this king and he's going to say, what did you do with my minas? What did you do with that that I've given you to invest in my kingdom? What did you do with the money or the time or the talent, the things that I've given you? And then there's another servant in verse 20, the other guy. And then another came saying, Lord, here's your mina which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and you reap what you did not sow. Now, now, what we learn right away about this other guy is, man, this guy is fooled from the beginning. Because his big complaint against the king is what? This is my talent. This is my mina. You are always taking from others what you did not plant. You're taking from others a harvest that you did not sow. He's got himself fooled into thinking that somehow that thing he had to begin with was his from the start. And so his complaint is, look, that's mine. And you're, you're wanting to take from me, even though you didn't do anything with it? I did all this work, and now I'm responsible to actually be accountable to you for this thing? This guy is absolutely fooled from the beginning. And he says, I didn't do anything with it because I've heard that you're a severe man and that you're just going to take. That's his response, response. By the way, this is ridiculous, and it happens to this day. Um, an equivalent argument that you might hear people say would be those who say, hey, if God's judge, then I don't want to follow him. That's a, with all due respect, that's a dumb statement. Because think about what you're saying. If God's real and he is the judge of all things, then I want nothing to do with him. As if not wanting anything to do with him is going to prevent that day of judgment somehow. That's a foolish thing to say. Uh, There's a band that I love. It's a secular band. Don't throw anything. Um, Named OAR. It stands for Of A Revolution. They have kind of college jam music, whatever you want to call it. And and they wrote this song that I wish I could like it because it's so good, musically good, but it's just the lyrics are horrible. And the song's called Heaven. And the lyrics of the song Heaven say, I don't want to go to heaven if I can't get in. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. Can you imagine? Hey, if I'm not good enough right now, then just send me to hell. Are you insane? Do you realize what you're saying when you make a claim such as that? But people say this all the time and sing it. And so this is what he's saying. He's saying, I I knew that you were a severe man. I know you're going to hold me accountable. And I know you're just going to take stuff as if he could somehow delay or prevent that day of judgment and accountability from ever happening in the first place. And so what's the response? The king responds in verse 22. He said to him, well, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Well, why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. 
Now, this is not him agreeing with him and saying, yes, I'm a severe man. What he's saying is, if you thought I was a severe man and you know that I take this stuff that seriously, then why would you do nothing with it? You're either a liar or you don't know me at all because you just sat on this stuff and did nothing? Your own words when you say that this is what you knew about me condemn you. If you thought I was harsh, then why would you sit on your hands as if this day was unavoidable? That's what he's saying to him. And so what does he do to the servant? This is tough. Verse 24, he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has 10 minas. And he said, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even he who has will be taken, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who didn't want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. You probably didn't study that line in your average uh, Palm Sunday teaching, right? We think about the kids in the palm branches, not bring those enemies over here and slaughter them before me. So, so let's think about what he's saying right here. He says that there's literally, there's three different types of judgment that take place when the king returns. The first is for the good servant, and that judgment is reward and rule. To the person who holds lightly to things of this earth, to under, that understands that we're not owners of anything, we are stewards of everything. And everything we have comes from God. Everything we are is designed by God. And where we are in life and what we are doing in life, we've been put there by the very providence of God, and we are to be stewards over that position, that talent, that money, those possessions, whatever those things are, to use them for the glorification of God and for investment, or literally, as this parable puts it, the profit of the kingdom of God, and then one day the king will return, and we will stand before him, and he'll say, what did you do with my minas? And the good servant is the one who holds loosely. He says, I, the money that I've been given, it's not mine anyway. I'm gonna hold, I'm gonna be open-handed about these things and I'm gonna use these things to try to glorify God. Now, I'm not advocating poverty theology that says that, well, then money's evil, so let's get rid of all of it. Look, money, despite what you may have been told, money is not evil. Please hear me. Money is not evil. If you think it's evil, just drop it off at the church this week and have nothing else to do with it ever, okay? Look, it's not evil. It's not, in, in fact, God is fabulously wealthy. It is not a sin to be rich. It's what we do with what God has given us. And the design is that God gives to you that you might be a blessing to others. This goes all the way back. Even when he chose the nation of Israel, he says to Abraham at the establishment of this, these people, the promise he makes for these people, he says, all nations will be blessed through you. And so they were the ones who had received God's favor, and they were supposed to be vessels of that favor to everyone else in the world. Instead, they allowed God's blessing to stop with them. And they said, we're the favorite. And this is what he's calling people out on. He's saying, look, the good servant is the one who understands that he is a steward of all things, and his responsibility is to allow God's blessings to pour through him. So everything that we have, from money to home, everything that we have to children, all of those things we are stewarding for God's glory. God owns them. It's not that being wealthy is evil. God even says himself, I own the cattle of a thousand hills. That, that's a way of saying, I am super rich. But God is also what? Generous and gracious 
and giving and good. And so our role as God's followers is to to bring to life, if you will, something of God's character as we steward those same things, that we're to be generous and gracious and giving in the same way that God is. And so to the first person, and the Bible's so clear on these things. I mean, just read the book of James. The Bible's crystal clear on these things. And so to the good servant, he says, and you, you, you've done well. You have invested that which I've given you. You have invested wisely to bring profit to the kingdom. To you, I grant rule and I grant commendation. You are very, what does he say? Well done, good servant. The second is for the wicked servant. And his reward, if you will, for his wickedness is banishment and exile. And this is scary. This is scary, guys. Because I want you to think about something. In Matthew 25, in the same account of this story in Matthew 25, it says that he tells them that they were to be banished away to the place where there's much weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's where the wicked servant goes. That's a biblical description of what we would call in this day what? Hell. So the wicked servant is banished to the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And here's why this is so scary that maybe we haven't thought enough about. This servant is in the community with the good servants. He's in the same group. He's under the same king. He works for the same leader. He is there amongst them. He's had all the same opportunity to learn about the goodness of his master, the expectations of his master, what it is he's called to do. He's in the same group. The difference is he refuses to submit and to follow. I mean, the the biblical example of this is who? Judas. He's, in fact, he's one of them being taught right now. So Judas is right there in the same group with all the other disciples. When the disciples are sent out two by two to go do ministry, Judas does it. Judas had a fabulously successful religious activity career. You guys know that? Like he was good and respected. He was the one who kept the money, the treasure, which meant he was trusted because he had them all fooled for sure. But he was there with all of them, but his motivation was so different. At the Last Supper, when all of them are interacting with Jesus, all the disciples call him Lord except for one, and that's Judas. He calls him Rabbi because he's not. Jesus is not his Lord. And so Judas, we know, the scriptures tell us, that he's pilfering the money to do what? To build his own kingdom. He's taking money. Instead of investing it for the kingdom, he's stealing. And this is the wicked servant. Now, and the other thing that's important to notice out of this is that the sin of the wicked servant is not a sin of commission. There's two different types of sin. You probably know this. There's commission and there's omission. And we tend to define who's good and who's not, who's spiritual and who's not, based on sins of commission. So that's why we'll say things like, man, he's such a good Christian. He doesn't drink. He doesn't smoke. He doesn't chew. He doesn't watch rated R movies. He doesn't listen to secular music like that pastor just mentioned. He doesn't any of those kind of things, right? These are all the things that we do not do because we're good Christians. But the Bible's also really clear. There's a lot of things we're expected to do because we're followers of Jesus. Book of James again, for example. And so this servant is actually called out and condemned for that which he was supposed to do and refused to do. I mean, think of it in terms of the other story Jesus told. The Pharisee who's praying says what? I thank you, Lord, that I am not like these other people, the tax collectors and all these other sinners. In other words, I don't cheat people and I don't do this and I'm not doing this and I'm not doing this, I'm not doing this. And what is it that Jesus says? That man is not justified before me. That is a terrifying thing to think about. 
Think of all the ones who, in Scripture, Jesus says, will come to him and they'll say, Lord, Lord, we did all these things in your name. And what is Jesus going to say to them? Depart from me. I never knew you. That means there's going to be people, even in that community of faith, that are saying, Lord, Lord, that are doing the religious activity. They're doing all sorts of things in Jesus' name, but because they have no relationship with him whatsoever, they're doing it for completely different motives, whatever they may be. And on that last day, they're the ones that Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. That is terrifying. Jesus even pointed to the religious leaders at one point, and he says, hey guys, you study the scriptures in vain. You're studying the Bible and you're wasting your time doing it. Because you think that you have life in them and you completely miss the one to whom they point. So you're doing all this religious activity. You're going to church, you're reading the Bible, you know all this stuff and you've missed me completely. And in this parable, they're the ones that are banished to a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's terrifying. Should be. And then the third one is the citizens it's referred to or enemies of mine it says elsewhere. These are the ones that say, we will not have this man rule over us. And he says, bring them here before me and slaughter them right in front of me. Um, God is a gracious and loving God, amen? 